This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello there, welcome. This is the Territory Story Podcast. I'm Peter Gowers and this is Leon Logan-Nathan. G'day mate and welcome to the Ward Keller boardroom on the seventh floor of NT House here on a Thursday evening as we're recording. And enjoying uh, the swaying of the building with the... uh cyclonic breeze that we're experiencing outside at the moment. Indeed, indeed. Mm. Well, being a Thursday, of course, it is the weekend edition of the podcast, so let's introduce the man himself from the NT Independent Online Newspaper in the flesh for the first time, Christopher Walsh. How are you, mate? Uh, hey, I'm good, guys. I can say good to see you this week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, in the flesh. Yeah, in the flesh. <laughs> yeah, good to do it this way. And uh, while we're in the flesh, we thought we'd uh, just expand the weekends with Walshy team by one tonight. So introducing Peter Kafkas to the team this evening. Guys, thank you so much for having me on. Appreciate to be on with the crew. Let's go. Welcome, Professor. Thank you. (laughs) All right. What do you got? Well, we have got a few stories uh, to talk about, Chris. But I think the story of the week really was the economic recovery plan and the... uh, the uh, you know uh, what what do you want to call that the group of of uh, very illustrious people that uh, were involved in putting it together the champions Leo. the champions league yes that's it the <laughs> champions uh, I met a couple of them Paul Henderson and uh, also uh, Mr Liveris at a function and uh, that was just prior before prior to it being released what did you get out of it Chris did you see anything in there interesting. Well, yeah, it uh, was well, funny that you say it's the story of the week. Don't tell our readers that, hey? oh. like, because that thing just tanked. Really? Yeah, and I don't really? think it was just us. Like, uh, just looking at ABC and what they did on social media it went nowhere. Like, there was like no shares of anything. Why? I, I just think people don't give a shit. To yeah. be honest about it, do you think they believe it? Like, look, I I think that everybody knows already that we're in a bad place right now bad economic place and waiting for more than four years for a government to get its act together and come up with a plan on how it was going to handle that i think people have have written it off already i think that it's kind of perceived maybe it's too late um i think it's it's overall it's a pretty decent solid plan and and not a lot of people have come out and said it's terrible it's just the question is what where was this for the last four years when we knew that this was going on, that the, the, the you know, economy was going down the toilet. And, you know, it, it, they've now come up with the, these, these ideas and these plans, but really that is something that probably should have been there before. And in fact, when we get down to it and we look at the plan when it was finally revealed, a lot of it had already been discussed and brought up. And some of the main points there, it's all about energy and exactly how they were going to do that. So, of course, they're talking about renewables, but at the same time, they're saying that we've got to, you know, frack. Yeah, wide open. <laughs> the Beetaloo Basin is what's going to drive the economy. We got to get that that gas up here to the top end in order to produce, you know, start this petrochemical manufacturing thing. Um, so I don't know how those two things kind of 
coincide and, and work yeah. with one another. It seems like that. And I think the environmentalists may have been the only ones who came out against this plan and said, mm. how does this, uh, how do you reconcile these two things and to, to pursue two different things, a decarbonization plan at the same time that you're fracking the shit out of the Beetaloo Basin. Yeah. So, um, and then you, you know, you look at the emissions that, that, that that's created and they're talking about the net zero emissions by 2050. So how do you achieve that while you're at the same time creating emissions? So, that was a little incongruous. Um, the rest of it, I think, was, well, you know, like like Rolf Garretson said, and like I said when I was reading through it, there's a lot of platitudes in here. There's a lot of, how do we attract private investment? Well, we know that that's been a problem here for forever, really. Um, how do we get private investment? And this thing says, what, roll out the red carpet. Um, yeah. I mean, what does that mean exactly? exactly? And, you know, you talk about making this place the easiest place to do business. So they're talking about, you know, reducing red tape. Well, this has gone on since, you know, for as long as I've been here, over six years. I've never known a government in the NT yeah. or, or an aspiring government, an opposition, who haven't said we're going to cut red tape. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then somehow we must just have piles and piles of it here. <laughs> We're still getting through it. But we do. Well, we know that to be true, right? We do have, what, 22,000 public servants. Uh, so there's yeah. red tape that comes with that. <laughs> yeah. And look, you know, as we talk about this, what I like to do with these sort of stories is to drill down and give you some real life examples. Okay. Mm -hmm. So today I got an email from a client of mine who is applying for $15,000 in funding to develop something, uh, to develop a new product, okay, through the NT government. And he says to me, I'm not going to tell you who it is or what it is, obviously, for, to protect him. I submitted the grant application and they immediately rejected it. Then someone in a position of importance, apparently, decided that it should be looked at again. So they reopened it and asked me to alter a few things uh, in order to get it moving. Uh, and he's he says, in this, you go, it's a very long email, and he says, you know, it's taken this long. I am frustrated. I've spent more than 200 hours on this grant for $15,000. Mm -hmm. This is where the rubber hits the road in relation to red tape. Now, I know it's in relation to a grant as opposed to in relation to a project, but the principles are the same. There are a ton of public servants that feel that they need to justify their existence by making life difficult for the rest of us. Yeah. Can, can I just chime in? Uh, so WA takes about a year to get an approval, and, and here in the Territory, am I right in hearing that it could take up to four years to get an approval? For what? For through government business for for different projects, yeah, yeah different especially projects. yeah, especially ones that would be environmental for sure. Yeah. And this is going back to you know the territory being the easiest place to become the easiest place to do business. Four years. I mean the the thing that um, that just just listening to the press conference, I was in the car at the time. Did you watch the whole thing? No, I, well, I, whatever was on when when I was in the car, but it was a reasonable amount of time. The key takeaways for me were that the Chief Minister came out and he read through, I guess you'd call them the highlights, and and immediately backpedaled, if you want to call it that, from the fact that, well, these are suggestions, but this isn't for us to do. This is for private enterprise and mm -hmm. we can facilitate it, but it's other people to worry about. Well, why bother getting the report? Because you and I could do that ourselves. And, and exactly what you said before, Chris, in regards to the rolling out the red carpet, 
which to me smells of let's spend money to get companies or governments to spend money here. Yeah. That's money we don't have. Yes. To that, promote that's... fracking and renewable energy, which we've been talking about for 10 years. Yeah. None of this is new. No, that's an excellent point, Pete. Um, that was one of the things that I think a little bit perturbed me about it all was that, that that's how business has been done here. And let's give you the best example of that. The building next door there, the Pass Valley building, right? And that, that when they came and they wanted to build that building, they went to the government and said, you know, we'll do it, but we'll only do it if you, if you agree to this 20, 25-year lease on this. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that the, the rental rates that the government's paying them is greater than New York City. <laughs> And and that's why. So they they didn't. They're not out any money. They're just making money. Yeah. And this story is documented. Dunlop, Dun, the Craig Dunlop wrote about it in the Anti News a couple of years back. So, so they've done that now. Passpally. Now look at what else they're in line for with the ship lift that's yeah. going around. This four hundred million dollar ship lift that they're not going to put any money into. That guess what? We're all going to pay for. And then they're going to reap the, the rewards and they get the profits off of it. And the taxpayers here will be paying back that $300 million loan to NAIF and the other $100 million that the anti-government's kicking in. But that is how government – or that's how business seemed to have been done here for a long time. And this doesn't address that at all. But you would have a company like Paspali come. And look, they've been very successful across the world. They're on Rodeo Drive. You can buy their mm. pearls there in Beverly Hills. Um, you would think that they would take some pride in their own – community and when they come back here it's like hey we've we've done pretty well we're going to give back to the community here mm-hmm. but they don't do it the first port of call for anybody for Pascal's for any other company is over there on the fifth floor of parliament house what can they get out of taxpayers what can they get out of the government in order to do a project and that's what I think they're referring to in this report as bankable investment. Mm. You've got to make this more bankable investment friendly which means that the the taxpayer is going to be the one covering the the risk and I mean, we've done that re- to ridiculous levels for years. And I think we're going to be on the hook for a lot here too with that ship lift because that doesn't seem economically viable, but they're doing it anyway. And it's the taxpayers who are going to lose out. But I just think that there needs to be a better plan of attracting private investment than with public money that we don't have anymore. And we're at that yeah. point where, you know, what we're looking at that $8.4 billion deficit on the trajectory to, um, well, Treasury's figures in this report, quote, Treasury figures of $16 billion by the end of the decade. That's wrong. That'll be up to $30 billion, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. like Langelant was saying. We don't have the money to provide bankable investments for private industry. That's just not how it's going to be. So there's going to have to be something else that gets done here. And until they start addressing that or coming up with solutions for that, I don't see... I don't see how they can do this economically, like viably, to um, to attract people here by just giving government handouts again. It's yeah. not going to work. I mean, it just it'll get some jobs for a while. Look at Impex; they've left. What really have they left? I mean, we're not getting any royalties off of Quarantine that. Quarantine center. Well, yeah, yeah, that's pretty well. The National Center for Resilience or whatever it's called. Yeah, which I refuse to call it that because it's an old workers' camp. <laughs> but. Um, yeah, I just I think that there should be a, they should probably look a bit harder, think a bit harder about how exactly they're going to attract private investment without giving away money that they don't have anymore. They've done it for so long, exactly. we just don't have the money to give the private business anymore. So. Yeah, yeah, bankable investment. <laughs> well, it says here uh, it requires a systemic shift in the role of government from facilitating investment to one of actively pursuing and winning investment for the territory. Similar words were used in the Langelant budget repair report that highlighted the government's structural deficit mm. 
that to date have not been taken on board. Yeah, that's right. And so that's what we see in this in this Territory Economic Reconstruction Commission report is that they're saying the same things that the government's been told you know, almost two years ago to do in order to fix things and do this right, and they're not doing it. They haven't taken Langelands' report, so I think the general feeling out there is that they won't action this in any meaningful way to produce results and do what they really need to do. Gunner, you know, today he's he's doing the exact same thing that he did last time with the Langelam report. He's putting it all on the chief executives of the departments, right? Mm-hmm. You see the NT News had the story exactly. today saying it's going to be on their heads now. Now they have until February. He's doing a strongman routine, and if they don't bring me the report I want, they'll be out. Now, he said that before about finding savings in agencies, and we've mm-hmm. seen that the budgets have blown out this year. Mm-hmm. And now they've blamed that on COVID. That was going to happen anyway. Yeah. There's no consequences for anybody here, but he comes out and he does this every time. Last report, put it on the chief executives. If you don't find savings, you're going to be sacked. And what happens? Nobody's sacked. No savings are found. So he's yeah. done it again this time. This time, you show us how you're going to change how this agency operates. Make sure it's more functioning for people. And, I mean, what are the consequences? There's not going to be anything yeah. for them again. So it's just the same routine that we're seeing every time. And, you know, honestly, I think some of this stuff in the report's pretty good. I think that it's a good starting point for those discussions of where we should be going and stuff. Um, but exactly how it's going to be executed, that's what it comes down to. Um, and yeah, I don't think anybody has a lot of faith that it's going to be taken to that next level yet. Interesting, though, that the CLP said, um, we, we really like this and a lot of the things that we talked about in the lead up to the election. So having like the controller major projects to try and get things in one person. <laughs> now, but where did they come up with the idea? Yeah. I mean, let's be honest, because this is stuff they went to Treasury. They went to the Department of Business and said, all right, help us come up with this, these ideas, right? <laughs> Give for, us some ideas. I mean, this stuff's been kicking around here for so long. It's now repackaged, mm. put into this report, a shiny new sticker on the front of it. And yeah. we're told we've got to implement it. So, But we haven't done it to this point. So that's just, I think that's the question that's in the air. Well, and I think that's, you know, without sort of harping on about this current government, because, you know, it was, it was pointed out to us very clearly by uh, one Malcolm Turnbull when we spoke to him, the previous government was a basket case as well. But it seems that there are no consequences now, because when, when you go into an election and you don't say you're going to do anything, <laughs> and, and you've got no major spending planned, you don't really have to do anything for four years. You can coast. No one can say, well, you didn't do what you said you were going to do. They have all these reports come out, and from what we've talked about previously, you know, they're backdating business plans, mm. which you know is fraught with danger. The, the last point I want to make on that, though, is we talk about this net debt the whole time, mm. and I heard it as clear as day. Oh, well, you know, COVID happened, so of course that threw everything out the window. But we've talked about that specifically. The money spent through COVID makes up a poofteenth of this total debt. Yeah. Yeah. Or even the deficit this year. So you're looking at what 400 million, a little over for COVID spending, but yet the deficit this year is 2.5 billion. So what, yes. I mean, how does that, how does that equate? How does that reconcile? I don't get that. We still haven't gotten answers for that. I'm not allowed to ask questions yeah. about that, <laughs> as you guys know. So I'd love to, but I'm not yeah. allowed to. Um, so well, we'll, we'll get to that story there. shortly, mate. Uh, but, <laughs> but before before we go there, we we want to talk about crime again. Yeah, so the youth crime data has been called out as meaningless spin by the opposition. That uh, the <laughs> who know chief... a thing about meaningless yeah. spin? <laughs> <laughs> Correct. 
So the Chiefs are out there pumping out figures in, in Alice Springs with the crime rate down there, but uh, the opposition aren't happy about it. No, that's right. So, look, we, we know because we've talked, we've talked so much about what is going on here with this and, and what's going on in Alice Springs especially. So um, uh, Michael Gunner, the chief minister, he, he grabs Nicole Madison out of whatever busy thing she's doing that day. He says, let's go down to Alice Springs. We won't tell anybody. Let's just go down to Alice Springs. We'll have a meeting. Well, we'll tell the insiders. We'll tell the cops. We're coming for a meeting, and it's going to be behind closed doors, and the public's not going to be invited to this. And I mean, this sounds was, like the Karama meeting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Yeah, absolutely. So they get down there, and I don't know the media. I guess they sent something to the NT or the uh, Centurion Advocate uh, down there in Alice Springs, and they say, "Yeah, look, we're we're going down here. We want to give you these numbers." Now these numbers show, and we know how bad. Remember the video we talked about last week where that mm-hmm. fight. Is happening with the youth in the street and Todd. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. just crazy. So, um, which was just another flashpoint and many other flashpoints. That, I mean, you still remember the guy? Remember when they were saying like, "What's it going to take in Alice Springs? It's going to be somebody dying." And then what happens? A guy dies, and a good guy, a guy who's like you know this personal care worker who's driving home to uh-huh. see his mother, and he gets run over by a stolen car, and he's and he's killed. And at what point does, do things start to happen? Now, I think it was around that point that, that this strike force was set up, strike force Viper. And Gunner says, yeah, we're going to go down there. We're going to take care of this stuff. So now today, yesterday, when he's down there around Wednesday, um, the Centralian advocate comes out with this story and they say, and it starts with, you know, the chief minister's in town and, and here are the figures obtained by the NT News slash Centralian Advocate as if they went out of their way to get this somehow, that they've FOI'd something, that they've got something illicit that the government doesn't want them to have, when in fact the government's given them this and said, don't question it. Here's the thing. Now, what it says, and it just doesn't make sense, so they say that they have, um, in Alice Springs, since October 14th, when Strike Force Vipers come on, 217 prosecution files have been submitted we don't know where they've been submitted, but they've been submitted. 217 prosecution files. And then they said that 122 were related to property offenses and 106 were submitted against youth offenders. So that, that's actually a total of 228 files, not 217, but I guess the reporter didn't bother adding those up either to check it out. Just take what the government said. You're told not to question <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And one plus one yeah. equals three. And now we know how to how you get into a press conference with Michael Gunner. It's just don't question it. Um, so, you know, it, it really it really was kind of shocking though that they would claim this. And and Leah Fanacaro came out today, and I think that she made a very good point, an excellent point, and how they approached this today was actually really good opposition stuff. This is what they should be doing. Mm. So they came out and, they, and she said, you know, using terms like prosecution file doesn't make people feel safe in their homes. And yeah. nor does it show territorians how many of these files actually resulted in bail or successful prosecution. So she says, um, you know, that the questions are straightforward questions here that they've they asked during the last um, parliamentary sittings last month. But these are pretty simple questions. So this is when, now, if I was, if I, and, I, and I hate calling out reporters for it, so I'm not going to name the guy, but if I, and I don't know him, but if I was given documents by a government like this, and I know that they're trying to get spin this to get it out to the public, you have a responsibility as a journalist to question it. You can't just publish what they give you and, and not send it to anybody else. If you don't know, 
anything about it, send it to someone else. But I would have looked at it and said, okay, what what is a prosecution file, number one? Yeah. Two, um, what does this actually mean? I mean, how many people have actually been arrested? How many youth have been arrested? How many youth are out on bail? How many youth... Um, committed an offense while they were on bail yeah because we know that bail is a big issue down there um so but no questions were asked here of that it was just presented to the public as is now they kind of covered it a bit by by letting robin lamley comment on the the overall trip to Alice springs and her mm. saying that you know she didn't think that anything would come of it and of course because it's behind closed doors and he's not fronting the public um, and then they let the CLP say something else about it, but they didn't ask the CLP about those figures either at the time, which was very interesting. But, but that is that in, in there lies the biggest problem that we have in the Northern Territory with journalism and just the state of politics and covering things here. And that is uh, these drops. And we've kind of touched on this before, but where the government says, so they go to the NT News. And they say, look, we've got this press release for you. Um, we're going to give it to you. It's an exclusive just for you. As if anyone's <laughs> competing with them. For years, nobody competed with them on this stuff. But here's an exclusive just for you. And the, the other part of that deal is that the newspaper takes it and doesn't question it and just allows the government a free kick here, essentially, to just throw your message out there. We're not going to do anything. Now, the next day... We're going to do a follow-up on it, and we'll get the follow-up from it. But the deal is that today, because you've given this to us as an exclusive, yeah. we won't question it. <laughs> and I had a very serious problem with that when I was at the NT News, and I've raised that. Um, but anyway, clearly this still goes on, and these people know, especially Labor knows how to manipulate it and use it to their advantage like mm. this. But the, you can't put this stuff out and put your name on it and and run it in your publication when you haven't done your job as a journalist to question it and the editor let that go through and that's just been part of the deal here and and it's really let the public down for a long mm -hmm. time and yeah the only way you do you, you fix that well i told them i said like i'm just not doing it anymore i'm not reporting on a drop and if they give it to me and you force me to i'm going to call somebody and get a, a third opinion on it like a third party yeah. Um, because yeah, you just, you're just becoming nothing more than a mouthpiece for the government when you're just spewing their stuff without questioning. And that's what happened in this case. Instead of the, the reporter, the journalist or the newspaper, let's just keep focus on the editor there saying that, look, you've got to, um, you got to go. I would have looked at this as the editor of one of our reporters brought and said, you got to go to somebody and ask them yeah, yeah. what this means. Go back to the government and say, how many people does this actually mean? What, how does this, how many people are actually involved here? What does this mean for fixing the problems in Alice Springs? Because we don't know when we're given these, these vague figures like that. The prosecution files 106 and they're not added up right. So yeah, until they start doing that. Anyway, so the CLP came out and said, here are the questions that should be asked. And those questions are still there. And she said, uh, Leah Fanakara said, look, if the government can't answer them now, just they should be put on notice. They'll be asked in estimates next week. Uh, and that's going to be very interesting because the government's actually going to have to give us the real crime statistics. And this goes back into last week's conversation, too, where we had, you know, the police management telling officers to lie to the public. <laughs> yeah. um, there's so much going on. And you had the, the rank and file and the police saying that the whole management there is too politicized, that they're doing the government's bidding, the minister's bidding. And here's another example of this, giving out this vague data that doesn't mean anything to people. Yeah, this is this is a serious problem here. This is a mm. serious, serious issue for democracy here and for 
for the public's right to know exactly what's happening. And it's, yeah, the media plays such an important role in making sure that this kind of garbage isn't allowed to, yeah. to see the light of day without being questioned or scrutinized to some extent. So, um, so with the problems in, in Alice, being the leader, wouldn't you want to meet with Robert Lambley, get together, come up with a plan, now's the time to do it? Is it, is it right? He's not even meeting with Robert Lambley? No, or, or any of the CLP members down there either. It's, yeah. it's like you're not doing part of your job. Yeah. Well, that's, but that's real leadership, what you're talking about. That, that, that's going across <laughs> like... <laughs> come on, mate. Yeah, come, come on. on. Get real. Come on. This right. is the NT. Come on. Come on. So yeah. it's, it's essentially that... Look, I would expect that from a leader, though. I would expect them to... to what you're saying is to kind of cross party lines and say... Yeah, let's get together. Yeah, we've got a serious issue here. How do we all address this for the greater good of the community? Because well, this, is, this is not a partisan issue, crime and dealing with crime down there. But he kind of makes it that. He makes it that by not, by not reaching out across the aisle and doing that. And I just thought for, for too long this has happened, too, here, where we've just... And we've talked about this. I mean, the only way you're going to solve this issue of, of crime and youth crime, not just in Alice, but across the NT, is get everybody involved. Yeah. Can I just ask you, you know, I feel it's... And, and take the politics out of it, I should say. I just want to ask a, a really serious question, and it leads into the next story that we're going to talk about, which is uh, Peter Grest and his uh, his article for uh, you know that was written in relation to your um, newspaper mm. is it is it my imagination or is the chief minister since the election has he just become sort of like clp like arrogant mm. I, 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 I think you're doing him a disservice when you say since the election <laughs> I think it predated the election, didn't it? Mm. I just, I just feel like it's sort of my way or the highway sort of mm. approach to governing at the moment. Well, it's, it's yeah, it's strange to say that. Well, uh, at that time or that time that you put it on it, that it was now. Remember, I, I've told you guys before that, like, you know, we, I think the public sees Michael Gunner as like uh, um, a nice guy, um, not very strong, really, like not that capable maybe in some capacity and that the speech doesn't help with that perception and stuff and that he's not a good communicator. Um, and, and I, I don't think they have much of a high regard for him and his leadership ability, but, but behind that, the stuff that, that we've been told about that's happened on the fifth floor paints a picture of a different individual and one who is very authoritative about everything. Like, um, makes people feel uncomfortable in the elevator and stuff. The media advisors and things like won't talk to them. It's not, you know, like, ah, you're kind of below me here. I'm the uh. boss here. And, you know, I've heard stories of when he like reamed Kershaw out. And I said, no, no, <laughs> like Michael Gunner screamed and yelled at the police commissioner at the time, Reese Kershaw. And they said, yeah, people who were in that meeting said, yeah, he actually did. Wow. So there's this other Michael Gunner that people don't, I think, see that much who, who, who is a little more assertive and um, does kind of run things his own way. And then, you know, there's that question of what, what did Elf Leonardi do in there? And did he, um, did he, did he build that up? Did he promote that or did he keep it at bay? And I mean, it's hard to say, but just from the people that we've talked on the fifth floor is that he's arrogant was a word that was used a lot. Um, yeah. And that, that he thinks he's above everybody. He, um, has his own way of doing things. He's not going to work with people. Um, and I think left to his own devices, as we've seen now, where 
you know, the worst part of this is that he's consolidated power completely with these, with this whole shift and the reshuffle and everything. And so that he's the treasury. So it's him and Jody Ryan, who's the chief executive. They're now in charge of the largest department in the department of chief minister mixed with treasury. So they control, they know everything that goes on there with spending and, and, and and Mm. how the real public service is actually working from the top down. And there's nobody else involved in that. So they've consolidated all of that power. So now if you're sensing some more kind of authoritarianism from him, (laughs) I would suggest that it's probably related to that. And, you know, and I'm not sure that that was part of the plan. I think that's just kind of how it's happened because the story was that, that, that Nicole Madison told them, right? Like, I don't want to be treasurer anymore. You can do it. And so (laughs) this job sucks. (laughs) And she wasn't very good at it. And I mean, yeah. So, but this is the position we're in now where, yeah. And the way that they folded those kind of departments across too gives DCM more power in all of that, which he's controlling with treasury. And yeah. So, um, how do you negotiate? somebody like that i don't know like where where's the accountability measures where are the checks and balances that come in that typically at the cabinet table would probably be there from the treasurer saying hold on hold on we can't do this but now that's gone that check and balance is gone and and he can do what he wants essentially so and and we know already that 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 there's nobody in labor to be an heir apparent or anything anyone who's going to take him on to be the next leader so I mean, I guess see from his perspective, he can um he's pretty much the ruler here, the little emperor as we say, and uh Yeah, yeah. He'll run his own game. To the detriment of anybody else, it doesn't matter. It's, it's his show. Mm. So uh Peter Grist uh, wrote an article for the Indy or, or was did he write an article or did he um No, he sent us it? some some comments right. in regards to it, yeah. And one of the things that jumped out at me, so this guy was, uh, he, he was, you're saying that he was formerly a journalist here in the Northern Territory. Yeah, I did hear that. Yeah. yeah. A friend of mine was telling me like a long time ago, but he, he started here or something. I think he was There's with ABC in like Darwin. That. Yeah. That Rosemary Church from CNN, she, she was here at one stage. Is that right? Carl yeah. Sanderlands was in Darwin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A, lot, a lot of big people in the business. Yeah. So I heard that Peter Gressel was, was a journalist here in Darwin. So he moved yeah. on to bigger and better things. And at one point in time, he's working for Al Jazeera in, in, yeah. in Qatar. <laughs> yeah, right? things. It I was think in Egypt. Oh, in Egypt. Yeah. And, in Egypt. And what happened there? Um, yeah, I wouldn't say better things. Um, <laughs> not better than Darwin, I don't yeah, think. Well, allegedly. Yeah, similar things to Darwin, <laughs> maybe. But he was, of course, he was jailed. Um, he was jailed for being a journalist and the Egyptian government saying that he, you know, questioning him and two others and suggesting that they were operating as spies. Uh, I believe Gresta was working for uh, Al Jazeera at the time. So he spent something like 400 days in an Egyptian jail. They sentenced him to something like seven to 10 years for espionage or spying or whatever. And, um, yeah, I remember, I remember, so I, and I came here to Darwin in Australia in June 2014. And I remember this story making headlines and then, and I'm thinking like, wow, yeah, that's kind of crazy. It was massive. Yeah. It really was massive. It was a big story. Yeah. And thankfully, yeah, in a way, Thankfully, because of his nationality, he, he essentially got let off or let out or however they work mm. it. But, uh, you know, there's still people in jail from that time who, who were local, mm. and that's unfortunately how they work over there. Yeah. Just for the audience, who's Peter Gress? 
So Peter Christ, as we were just saying, was a journalist who was here. What's um, he do So right now, so he's well-respected journalist. He's at the University of Queensland as a research fellow uh, for their journalism program. Um, but he's also the spokesman for a group called the Alliance for Journalist Freedom. And now uh, they're, they're an Australian organization that kind of monitors and advocates for press freedoms across the Asia-Pacific region. Um, and we've spoken to them before. Um the anti-independent, they had gotten in touch with us. Somehow it had come to their, I think we, we, anyway, somehow we were communicating with them and they've said like, well, we can't believe that this is happening in our own backyard. You know, this being the ban yeah. that, that Michael Gunner has imposed on the anti-independent and won't let us to press conferences and won't give us, you know, won't let the departments release information to us. Um, so they said, look, yeah, we, we've got to get involved because, you know, usually we're, we're casting our eyes over to the, the Pacific or the, the Asian region and, um, you know, what's going on in China and what's going on in some other places there. Um, but they said, yeah, to believe this is in our own backyard, the Northern Territory. Um, we want to get involved here. We want to help. And so this has been going on. They've been involved for months. And, you know, and I won't say too much, I guess, because, you know, I don't want to, you know, everything's being done the way they want to do it. So, but there's been communications with the government. They've reached out to say, hey, let's, let's have meetings. Let's discuss. Um, we've done the same as the NT independence end of the government. You know, we're, we still want to work with you guys. If there's anything, you know, just tell us what we need to do. And it's just kind of been a complete shutdown and they won't, they won't comment at this point. So, um, but getting back to Peter Gresta and, and, and the big story that it was about him being jailed and him eventually getting out, um, that really carries a lot of weight when a guy like him and yeah. of his stature comes out and says what Michael Gunner is doing is wrong here. It's undermining democratic principles and and um, and really eroding integrity in government um, everywhere that we see. So he said, you know, lift the ban. Um it's the right thing to do. And, you know, I went to the government with this before we ran the story, of course, as we do with every political story that we've run. We go to whoever the minister is and we said, look, here's the story we're going to run. Here's a couple of questions. Do you want to provide comment? And they never get back. So they didn't comment on this. But, um, but yeah, it's, it is, it is quite significant to have, um, Peter Grist to come out and, and, and kind of call on the government and saying this isn't, how it's done um i i think the best line that he said was uh well i mean there's a lot of, every every line was very powerful <laughs> but um the one that that hit me the most was that you know governments that avoid questions that touch on matters of public interest undermine the essential transparency that makes our democracy work mm -hmm. so when when you take that and you and you think about the things that we've tried to ask michael gunner so you know, do you guys you guys remember a couple of weeks ago when he tried to ban Sam McMahon yeah, from attending yeah, that yes. that federal Nancy, funding announcement? Yeah, it was, hey, we've got three hundred million dollars for you yeah. here, and he's like, get out of my office! Like, yeah, which is <laughs> yeah. just crazy. So, you know, and 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 they had invited me, the the, the liberals, and I was going to go. And then he, he got wind of that or something, and he took it up to Madison's office on the fifth floor, and they wouldn't let us in. But the night before I was supposed to go and I'm thinking, okay, here's what I'm going to ask about because there's no running from me now. He's got to yeah, yeah. take my questions. And um, so I was going to ask him about the China deal. I mean, we still yeah, yeah. don't know what he signed there. I'm, I'm not sure that he knows what he signed <laughs> there at this point, honestly. Yeah. Um, 
And just on that a little bit more, you know, the FOI and they rejected it. So it's, it's gone back to them and they need to provide an excuse now for, um, for why they didn't release these agreements because we know that he signed something in 2016 and 2019 and they refused to give them to us. So I did want to ask him about coming clean on that and telling territorians exactly mm-hmm. what he's got us into. I was going to ask him about his own flights there. I remember the uh, Sydney trip yep. with the Taylor. The high-class Taylor. Oh, the, oh, the third best. <laughs> the third best. <laughs> third best Taylor in all the land of Sydney. Um, <laughs> wanted to ask him about crime. You know, that's some other stuff that he's really getting a free pass on a lot of yeah. times like this, like where he's releasing these figures that don't mean anything and, and the yeah. journalists let him walk. Um, the public safety issues that we raised were, of course, in relation to, remember, TIO Stadium. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Yeah, yeah, and the Silks Club. There's some more coming out on that at some no, point here soon. Um, the Silks Club stuff, um, more on that coming out very soon, too. Um, and, you know, just overall COVID stuff, because the government yeah. doesn't take our questions on any of that. And, you know, you look today at six more cases. They said we're all connected to the New Delhi India flight, but why did it take five days yeah. For them to land before it was detected, is is there an issue out there now at that facility, which is the Howard Springs Workers yeah. Camp Quarantine yeah. Facility, not the yeah. Center for National Resilience? Um, is there like something going on out there? Is it being passed around there? Do they have a bit of an open? Yeah. Nobody's asking that question, you know, and they won't let us in. They won't. I can send them questions, and they're not going to answer them. So there's a lot of serious stuff at stake here that um that he is most definitely hiding from michael gunner by banning us and not answering our questions and he knows we're going to ask him tough questions so that that's why i think peter grest line on um on that really hit home for me was yeah this is and he gets what we're doing he's seen what we're reporting um so at this point um it's another bit of a shame thing i guess for gunner i mean he, he hasn't come out to say anything i um not sure what they think about that but but they should feel a little bit of shame here that peter gresta a guy mm-hmm. a journalist who's been jailed before who knows how oppressive regimes work yeah correct comes out and says what you're doing isn't cool is not in keeping with the functions of democracy well that's uh that's pretty bad uh, well that's the stark reality isn't it mm-hmm. i mean essentially mm-hmm. if you're being compared with egypt mm-hmm. and what happened to him mm-hmm. like it's time to wake up and smell the roses. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's just, it's crazy. And, you know, some questions raised, too, on um, on the MLA Code of Conduct and Ethical Standards Act. And I think um, our learned friend Leon here might <laughs> at some point be talking about that sometime soon. Well, but. I'm going to talk about it now because... Okay. Uh, <laughs> That's good timing. Yeah, hey, that worked out well. Because uh, there is a piece of legislation... That, uh, that includes a code of conduct for members of the Legislative Assembly. Now, I wasn't aware of that. I can't remember who actually brought it to my attention. Maybe it was you, Chris. I'm not sure. But uh, So I thought, all right, well, let me go and have a look at this and see what it says. And amongst a myriad of very interesting things in there, <laughs> it says that, well, the code of conduct requires members of the Legislative Assembly to foster the freedom of reporting by media. <laughs> now, I don't think you need to be a lawyer to come to the conclusion that the government is breaching their own code of conduct. Yeah. yeah. Maybe they don't know what foster means. Maybe they thought it meant hinder. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that they've read it. 
<laughs> I don't think that they've read yeah, the code of free. conduct. No, I really yeah, do free. not. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that they've actually read it? I don't think any of the members have read it. Well, they might have not because I wrote them a letter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now they now they so, got to read it. But is that enforceable or is it just suggested? Well, here's the problem with the act. Now, what I haven't done, and I need to do this, is I need to go and research the, the, the Hansard on this act, right? This act came out, I think, 2008. It sounds right. Right? Yeah, so it's, it's been around for 12, 12 yeah, odd yeah. years. But the way it operates is if there's a breach of the code of conduct, the assembly has to bring it to the attention of the privileges committee. Now, the privileges committee is made up of people, uh, uh, well, um, elected members uh, from both sides of politics, right? So it's basically a subset of the assembly. The discipline committee kind of, yeah. Um, And it's, I believe, the current chair is Natasha Files. Uh, and then there are two other Labor people on there, and then I think there are two, are two CLP people, or there might be an independent, I'm not sure. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. Now, if the Privileges Committee finds that the Code of Conduct has been breached, then they can sanction the particular member. The problem is the Assembly has to bring the complaint to the Privileges Committee. In other words, the government has got to dob themselves in. Because ah. they How's have the it? numbers and they can ah, shut it down. So ha- right, so it yeah. can't be anyone from the assembly. It has to be agreed upon. Well, that's what the act says. Now, yeah. I don't think it's ever been tested. Right. Well, and, you know... It's, it's going to be... Well, no. No, not that I'm aware of, but I think it's going to be. And uh, I don't know just in regards to this, but there's the other matter of foot two here is the Kizia Purik. Oh, yes. Thing. And right. that she was supposed to be referred to the privileges, but the commissioner, the ACAC commissioner, found that they hadn't really done this ever, <laughs> actually referred anybody <laughs> before. So right. they didn't know how to refer Kizia Perik to it, it even yeah. though they should have. And so they put it off into this because then the election was coming. And so now this term of government needs to deal with it. But so far it hasn't happened. Right. And I don't, right. I, I would suggest it's not Look, going to. Here's my gut feel on this. Okay, it is so bizarre. I mean, because you know, you think the parliamentary council there, that the, I mean, if you think lawyers are, are nerdy, parliamentary council are the people that draft legislation. They are the nerdiest of nerds. They, they think of everything and anything when they're putting legislation mm. together and they obviously go back to the relevant agency and say, look, this doesn't make sense or that doesn't make sense. It needs mm. to be written in this way. My gut feel, looking at the way this legislation has been drafted, was it was never ever intended to operate with any degree of of uh, of use. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Because how can sure. a piece of legislation work where the government has effectively got to bring an action for for a breach of the code of conduct, which would more often than not be the government. I mean, it could yeah. be the opposition if they were, say, taking a, you know, having a lend of their uh, travel allowances or other yeah. things or doing silly things like or that. the speaker could, was buying excessive yeah. amounts of alcohol. Sure. Yeah. It, th- th- you could yeah. see that situation happening, right? But a situation where there's an undermining of the rule of law, of democracy, yeah. and in this case here, you know, fostering freedom of reporting by the media. It's actually in there. That sentence is in the code of conduct. Yeah. Trying to get around it by saying they're not real media. Is that yeah. they're trying to get around it? Well, what Chris is saying is that they uh, they haven't read the act. 
Yeah, and and let's keep in mind that the other part of that, and just to drill down a little further into that, right, is that that it's it's all based on these four pillars of integrity, mm-hmm. and then you know these four principles that they need to govern themselves by with every decision they make. And a big part of that is that you don't let your personal feelings influence decisions that need to be made in the best interest of all territorians, right? Mm. So whether that's a business deal, whether that's approval for some for some big project, something that's going to happen, you can't let your own personal opinion get into that or else yeah. you know, you're not functioning for everybody else. And what he's done in this case is pretty clear. I mean, they've said that on the record. He said our problem with the NT Independent is the nature of its ownership. Hmm. So he's saying he doesn't personally like Owen Pike. And therefore, he's made a decision that's not in the best interest of Territorians because in their best interest would be the free dissemination of information from a lot of different places. He said that, no, his personal opinion is he doesn't like Owen Pike and therefore Territorians can suffer for it because he's not going to let another media outlet or an editor in who knows what questions to ask him and knows how to keep him accountable on this. So, mm-hmm. um, so that, you know, you're getting into corruption there. That, that actually becomes corruption and something that the ICAC can investigate and probably yeah. should. So the ICAC is the one that oversees politicians. Well, he oversees a whole bunch of things, but this would fall under that because, you know, in terms of that, I mean, it's the same as if he made a decision based on financial interests for himself, his personal financial interests, he gains, by making a decision about this. In this instance, he gains by making the decision to ban us from attending press conferences. Mm. That's to his advantage by me not being there. Mm. Yeah. And, and it's because he says he doesn't like Owen Pike. Well, you got to put your personal differences away, but we've, we've talked about irrelevant. how he can't do that. Yeah. I mean, like he's incapable as a human being, as we've seen, of yeah, like yeah, yeah. turning the other cheek, having thick yeah. skin and just saying, you know, let's, um, let's move on here in the best interest of what's good for Territorians, and that hasn't happened in this case. So we'll see where it goes, but I think we're going to be talking about this a lot more. I think think we will. Does it count as an advantage by giving your brother-in-law a pretty red-hot job? Would that fall into that category, Leon? Uh, Possibly. It depends on on how it was done. Send it to the ICAC. Let's figure it out. (laughs) Just if it meant the chirping in the ear from the other half was, you know, much lower if... (laughs) If the brother was happy with the job, mm. maybe. Something's okay. going on there. <laughs> anyway, we'll park that. Um, now, taxpayer cash is to be controlled by a new entity uh, in Jabiru now, while the previous group faces an investigation. Yeah, that's right. Um, good story David Wood wrote this week. Um, so this whole um, Jabiru, of course, the big uh, project going out there, you know, I think it was, I mean, the numbers are difficult, difficult to find because there's a bunch of different numbers being thrown around, but somewhere like $446 million rejuvenation master plan out there, right? Like you're, mm-hmm. you're looking at nearly half a billion dollars. So you had this, this uh, organization out there. Um, it must be getting a Dan Murphy's for that sort of money. <laughs> well, yeah, it's all kinds of stuff, right? So then this ties back to our mate. Andy Cowan and his trip over to Disney World because <laughs> he was working for, or he's going to make decisions on how to spend this money within the guy who paid for his trip is in line to get this to build a hotel. Okay. And um, anyway, but look, this story kind of more focused on what's going on there in the, in the, in the town itself. And the, uh, and I should have asked Woody on how to pronounce this. Does anyone want to make a shot? Take a shot at Gunjami? We'll say Gunjami Aboriginal Corporation. So now, last year, um, 
these guys were raided by the police. Goodness me. And by the Office of the Register of Indigenous Corporations, who went in and took documents, financial documents, other records, everything mm. pertaining to to their business dealings. And um, that was late last year. So we haven't seen anything. Woody's gone to Oric itself, that body that investigates, and says, you know, where does this stand? They're, they're not making any comment because the investigation's ongoing. Right. So meanwhile, what we see here now, and this is some, um, this has upset some people who I guess didn't want us to report this, but, but Woody looked into it and he found that, um, well, what they've done is they've just set up another corporation and this is now the Ganjami Aboriginal Corporation, Jabiru Town. So they've mm. added that in there. But how were they able to set up another corporation? Wouldn't that have had to have been registered with Oric? You would think. And yeah, this is, um, look, Woody knows all the ins and outs on it. But from what I, what, what he's told me is that <laughs> many of the directors who were on that first entity are on this entity and people connected to them. And so, um, what was it? Six of the six nine, of the nine. Yeah. are members of that. But then there's other connections with lawyers being a lawyer for that for that first company is now on the board of directors of the new company. Uh -oh. um, like there's a lot of stuff going on there. Um, so now where it gets, you know, and I, so there's this lofty idea, this ambition for a four hundred and forty six million dollar redevelopment there. Um, but what's happened more recently is that uh, Ken Wyatt, the Minister for Indigenous Less Trans, was in the NT last week, and he announced $2 million um, from the Aboriginal's benefit account to support this new, new body's establishment and initial transfer and management of leasing arrangements there in Jabiru. So... Um, as Woody pointed out in some sources that he talked to, this is despite this group having millions of dollars of its own money as being the receiver of royalties for the Marar people out there, and uh, which includes money from ERA, uh, from Ranger Uranium, and of course the royalties and payments there. So mm. um, here's all of this public money being thrown at this um, because it's good politics. I mean, the, the, the appearance here is that look how good we are. We're the federal government. We've come in and we're throwing money around to some indigenous people to get, to get, yeah. you know, things going there. And, yeah. and how important is it? Well, it's, it's important. It is. That's, they need to be brought in. I mean, you go back to the Economic Reconstruction Commission, things that we've known for years. You got to, um, get indigenous people to be involved in the development of the place. But in this case, I mean, this, this particular group that's set up, I mean, you have to ask the question, uh, how, in good faith, they could give this group $2 million of taxpayer money with the promise of many more tens of millions on the way to set up. I mean, it's almost like they've, they've already ended Oric's investigation for them and said, we don't think that these guys are guilty of anything. And how does that go, at right? Least, at least I mean, six of them are, anyway. But, you know, when, when we get into that point of how does this affect that Oric investigation going forward, right, is... As a journalist, we can't find anyone to say that. Do you know why? Because uh, we could go to labor and yeah. say, look what the government's doing here. What do you guys think? And by the way, federal labor speaks to us. Right. But they're not going to say anything about this because they're afraid, you know, it's going to look bad and that they would do the exact same thing. They'd be giving this money because it all looks good that they're giving, that, you know, they're providing indigenous people with advantages here and that it's good for the economy and it's going to help. And, and really... 
you need to ask the questions of, of, of where the taxpayer money is going and if it's being spent appropriately and given to the proper bodies. And there has to be a question mark and a cloud over a company where that's set up with most of the directors from another company that's under investigation. <laughs> I mean, I, I, we have to spell it out like that. You would think that you wouldn't do that when you're the minister and we you talk about responsible decision-making here. <laughs> We've just spoken about that and these guys yeah. are showing that they haven't done it. So there's a lot more to come on this too. Um, so did you put this to the uh, the members of the new company? Yes. And, yeah. and no response. They were unavailable for comment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what do you have that in there? Yeah, oh, dear Lord. And, and, you know, and even the minister's office, we went to them and said, here, we know this. We found all this out. Um, what do you think? Why are you giving them $2 million of taxpayer money <laughs> here? And no, he's decided he's not going to talk to us at this point either because it's not convenient for him. So it seems like a fairly good tactic, actually. If you're a politician and you don't want to answer a question, just don't respond. Yeah, well, you see how far that goes <laughs> for you. Next thing you know, you're being publicly humiliated <laughs> on an international level. And, uh, yeah. and you know, you start to lose, not only do you lose the integrity of the government and your position, but you yeah. start to lose credibility in the community when you do that stuff. And I think the politicians don't realize that at first. I think they realize later when a story is bad about them yep. and they think I can just survive this and it's not going to affect me. They don't know how deep it actually does affect them. And in people's eyes, the credibility that they lose. Every time Michael Gunner does that, every time he doesn't tell the truth about something or he hides from something, he loses a little bit of credibility with everybody in the community. And whether or not how long that takes for him to recognize that, I don't know, but it gets to a point where people aren't showing up when you're going to hold a meeting and stuff. And yeah, they're just yeah. like, I don't need to hear you anymore. And, you know, that was happening before the election with him. And it's happened with other politicians and it'll happen again. And then you're just done. Your, your political career is over. So mm. keep it up. But, but the public doesn't respect people who run and hide and do that. So I just can't help but think this is all driven from the U.S. If you look at the last four years of madness, and I said to someone the other day that, Gee, it just the world just suddenly feels quiet all of a sudden after that complete lunatic has obviously gone into his back cave somewhere. But all of this behaviour just seems to have been driven from I mean, at least the Australian politicians aren't saying fake news, but short mm. of that, the behaviour seems echoed. Mm. It's gonna get to a point. I've been thinking about that too. I mean, at what point does respectability come back? And what point does the consequences come back. Yeah. We talk about that a lot, but yeah, I guess it's it's the respect to the value that that the individual puts in that position that they have, right? That yeah, like and whether or not, at what point do you take that position and degrade it to the point that you've you've brought it down? You're saying you you've got to go in order to maintain that integrity of that position. For some reason, that just does that seems to be lost these days. But you know, things like that are cyclical and. There'll be somebody who comes, a leader of a party or somebody that people will get behind who's going to talk about restoring integrity. And uh, I'll tell you, it would be interesting to do a poll now about that kind of thing here. I think in the NT, and, and just to remind you guys that in 2016, we did a poll. Well, we did many polls in 2016, like real scientific polls, not the yeah, crap yeah. they're doing at the NT News now where they're, oh, here's our Facebook poll. Tell us what you think. There's no way this could be compromised at all. more of a quiz. <laughs> yeah. So... We were doing good scientific polling. Now, believe it or not, in 2016, before the, the general election in August 2016, the single biggest issue was integrity in government. 
It wasn't health. It wasn't education. It wasn't even the economy back then. Mm. I mean, that was up there, but but things were pretty good economically speaking, or so we thought anyway. And so it was sold to everybody. Really, it was we'd see the cracks now. But integrity in government was the biggest issue, and, and that was because of the sale of TIO. Well, that was because of. Just everything the CLP did. <laughs> yeah, like, right, right, but right. people, people. Sale of the chief minister chair a couple of times. Too. Yeah, it's, yeah, sale. Yeah. Oh yes, there was a few, uh, few chief ministers, weren't there? Yeah, there was. Yeah, the old switcheroo. Oh, there was so much wrong with that, and there was travel scandals, and there was a whole bunch of integrity issues, and yes. and you know allegations of corruption, and all of this going on. TIO was a big one. Yeah. The port was another yes. big one, and that's oh, still yeah, a big one. Yes. So. So people, territorians, were sick of it, and that was their biggest concern. That's how they voted last time. And Michael Gunner knew this, and Labor knew this, and that's all they did, right? I mean, their their whole last two and a half years in opposition was just spent every day coming out and attacking the CLP on credibility and integrity issues, and and that was well played for them. And then they, Very well played. yeah, and then he wrote his manifesto called "Restoring Integrity to Government," <laughs> and uh, which you know anyway. The, which just is in the garbage now. It doesn't matter. And he did very little. Maybe 20% of that was actually actioned, right. including the FOI stuff, which is a complete joke. And we'll talk about that soon, too. <laughs> but, um, um, yeah, so they knew that. And that was a big issue at the time. Now, this last one, of course, we had, of course, the pandemic. And we have the economy in the, in the gutter here and down the toilet. So those kind of issues have taken over. But I think, I think once we get past that, I think deep down... People, people are concerned about it. the fact that they were in 2016 and lead up to the election. And that was the biggest issue is remarkable. And it tells me that it, it will happen again. Mm-hmm. It will come back around. It isn't that people don't care about integrity and in government anymore. Maybe they don't see it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and they get maybe used to it. But I think that if somebody shows them the difference and says, yeah. this is what integrity looks like, that they're going to go for that. And. That's what take me one of those. Yeah, as, yeah, as, yeah, and that's what he was promising, and he's let people down on that. But and and the more that we dig and we start exposing little things here and there, I think people are going to start saying, "Well, we need integrity restored here." Mm. So make integrity <laughs> great again. Well, mate, um, let's switch down from the territory government to the Darwin City Council. <laughs> can you tell <laughs> us? Yeah. Can you tell us who? Alderman Arth- Andrew Arthur is. I've never heard of him. No, I don't. I've never heard of him. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> until, until this story. <laughs> okay. Well, Alderman Andrew Arthur says building a light rail system in Darwin could attract motorists out of their cars and reduce carbon emissions in the region um, uh, to uh, ba- yeah, re- basically reduce carbon emissions because apparently we're pumping too much greenhouse gases into uh, the atmosphere here in Darwin. Yeah, so you remember that the council hired their climate change boffin that everybody was like, why are you, what is this, the climate emergency boffin, whatever they were calling them, <laughs> con set it up. And, and so they hired this guy. So he comes out now the other day on ABC Radio and he says, look, we've done a study. We, we found that 2 million tons of greenhouse gas emissions are being created in the greater Darwin area. And 60% of that's coming from vehicles, from transport. Um, so everybody's well, okay well we didn't know that i mean in the broad scheme of things what's that look like well it is actually i think it is a little high and but like he said you know it's just the way darwin's set up it's that's drive. Right. we drive everywhere here yeah 
well, I'll take a bus. And uh, yep, that's not an option. No, not really, is it? And so, and so that's what what Andrew Arthur was saying was that you know you get on the bus, there's issues with violence, with um, you know drunks on there, smashing things. Yeah. I think other people were going and saying there's a lot of body odor issues on Correct. there. I mean, there's all kinds yeah. of frivolous <laughs> things and some serious things yeah. going on. So he says, what if we do a classy? <laughs> light rail thing Yo, that's what he said that's it. keep it classy darwin <laughs> we're getting a light transit rail he's getting his uh, advice from ron burgundy <laughs> <laughs> so that's what he said though he said let's like because they wouldn't the problems go on to the to the light rail stuff and he said no we'll keep it classy Okay, well, good luck because nothing's yeah, ever worked at Darwin that stayed classy before. And that's a fine line between, I mean, you know, the the rail system in Dubai, right? So that's a real fine line when you start to hit a South African kind of, well, we'll have one bus for them and one bus for us type mentality. <laughs> yeah, wow. yeah, well, yeah. And that then, is one you know, step so away. They, um, so, you know, but look, this this isn't a new idea. This isn't something that Andrew Arthur sat at home one night and came up with. <laughs> <laughs> this is, uh, you know, like an apparition you came to him. go into the book of already come up with answers. Okay, start at the bottom. You know, I think, like, if, if Khan had to beat him to this, Khan probably would have said he came up with it. Someone, a vision came to him the other night and he it fell was... out of his bed and he couldn't believe it. And he saw the light and Sitting we need the light rail. So, Except um, he would have disowned it the next day. He said, no, that wasn't me. Yeah, I wasn't scripting that. That was Andrew Arthur. I actually said was. <laughs> so, but anyway, so Andrew Arthur comes out. Now, this has been brought up before and, and I think it was back in 2015 was the last time that it was kind of talked about and the government did a did a report into the feasibility of that and they suggested that look for the future this is something that should be looked at here and then we should consider this in future planning forward planning um i don't think they've done anything on it since then like everything that that we tried to find after that doesn't exist so it was around that time um i think he brought it up in 2017 again but but since then i mean the government really hasn't done anything on it uh so that's kind of where we're left with it but it is something i think the people i think it's worth having the discussion about now you talk about money and i he said something really weird like tiger brennan drive what did that cost one million or one billion dollars i don't know one million billion dollars so no but it must it have taken a million or a billion dollars to build tiger brennan <laughs> right. somewhere in there yeah it's got the difference, 500 million. <laughs> that probably is what it is. But, um, but and still, there's no overpass. Yeah. So we went and looked at the ACT thing, right? Because yeah. I think Canberra had one, and it was, what, 700, 700 million. million for 12 clicks of track yeah. or something? 12 or kilometers. How are they going to do it? So you've got Darwin Palmerson's, what, 23? 22, 23, somewhere in there. So um, what would that cost? 1.4. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess so. So... I don't know though. Is that something that people should be discussing here? Is that something that one point four billion? We'll just add it to the eight billion. That you know, what the heck? You know, no, I know. But there's well, there is federal funds for that kind of stuff too. But well, the, I city, mean, I don't the know. city's deal. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, you can get five hundred mil for a new university that nobody needs. Might as well. Currently, money's cheap, so that's good. Yeah, that's right. it. yeah. 
No, yeah, look, I, it's it's one of these things that I think keep coming up and keep coming up. But And, you know, I really got a big reaction on Facebook. Like People mm-hmm. want to talk about it. Some of them say, this is something we want to talk about, and other people say, that's yeah, a mate, Who's going to do it, though? Yeah. You know, realistically, yeah. right? I mean, I think about this from the perspective of Perth and Singapore, okay? Yeah. In Perth, it works because the climate is conducive to it. Uh, in fact, it works very well, yeah. actually, right? Yeah. In Singapore, it works because it's underground. Yeah. So yeah. who in Darwin or Palmerston is going to park their car in some car park <laughs> in the middle of the wet season <laughs> and yeah. walk to a bus stop or, uh, or train st- a classy train stop, <laughs> um, possibly with uh, local inhabitants? Uh, oh, guaranteed to have rocks through your window by the time you I just, you know, I don't know. If it was mm. underground, maybe. Mm. In fact, a lot of Darwin and Palmerston should be underground, if you ask me. Yeah. You know? Yeah, get away from the heat. Yeah. Get away from the heat. Um, all right, but what if it's classy? <laughs> what is the extra cost to go underground now too it's 1.4 billion <laughs> sorry I live in Palmerston mate and classy in Palmerston is probably the ultimate oxymoron you could have I reckon <laughs> yeah. well expect this to come up again another three to five years and uh, somebody will be saying it's we need to be doing it again. Someone will just change the Simpsons monorail song and uh, and resell it. That was something that was discussed for the uh, graphic on that. <laughs> do we do well? He's not gone that far and suggested a monorail, but yeah, you're right, Leon. It's more a Townsville idea anyway. This light rail, exactly. Right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Uh, turning now to uh, the business community and uh, the new holiday declaration is. Uh, caught some by surprise yeah so late last week so friday um the chief minister came out and made an announcement well he didn't come out because that would imply that he had a press conference (laughs) and there'd be questions thrown at him he actually did it from his social media account on facebook and he told everybody he decreed then by chief ministerial order that Mm. the boxing day will be considered now this um this holiday where penalty rates will apply um, for all businesses who have to pay their employees for that. Um, it uh, did not go over well with a lot in the business community. We were saying, look, we were already really hard hit after this year. And we know that, you know, and, and there, I think there was that sense of resentment of here are the public servants again coming in and telling us mm. that after what we've been through, well, they've been living high on the hog here and we've been laying people off and things have been bad. And here, and here the chief minister is the head public servant, the head politician saying, yeah, now you guys can all pay, you know, penalty rates for your employees there. And they're saying this is too much. And, and where was the consultation? This was a surprise. Now, the last time that it happened that he pulled something like this was back in, um, 2016, right after the election, his first order of business was making Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve like half-day holidays where mm-hmm. they would have to be paid. Do you guys remember yes, that? I, I do like, remember that. It was that. the first thing he did, right. and everybody was like, whoa, wait a second. This is the guy who's bringing integrity back, and he just pulls this one out without telling anybody? And at the time, that was seen as him paying back his union mates and uh, doing this because the unions wanted it, right? So a lot of accusations being thrown around late last week and early this week that uh, that that's what this is about too, that, you know, here he is pissing off the unions with this $1,000 um, 
bonus mm, idea mm, instead of the two point two percent, whatever it was, um, annual pay rise. And so, does he give them? Is this payback for them? Keeps them happy, at least on that. And he's showing some goodwill towards them there. I don't know, but I'll tell you that the people that we spoke with weren't happy about it, and the people who went on social media, his social media. Well, I don't know if his. You know, we should go and look at that if his social media, because I know on everywhere else, other news sites and stuff, people were quite upset about it. But his social media never seems to have negative comments on it. It's always just happy stuff. Is someone scrubbing it. Yeah. Well, yeah. I must admit, I've seen his LinkedIn, uh, and it often has negative stuff on it. Oh, does it? it? Yeah, and good. no one okay. ever replies, which I find yeah. intriguing. Yeah. But, yeah, definitely on LinkedIn, I have yeah. people voice their opinions. Because mm. I wonder what, if he's listening or not, because, yeah, so a lot of people weren't happy with this. Now, a lot of people will be happy with it, so it's one of those things. I mean, the workers, of course. Yes. Um, but yeah, was, is this something where, especially considering the year that, 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 that everybody's had, um, businesses, especially here in Darwin, especially, um, should they have been consulted first? Should they at least been given the heads up after this year that, Hey, mm. this is what we want to do. The fact that he didn't do that, I think is what's really rubbing people the wrong way. Oh, and that it looks like something suspicious has gone on in a, another dodgy it's deal. It's because of the day that it falls on, isn't it? it it's, yeah, it's a Saturday. That's right. Yeah, it's yeah. a Saturday and the Monday. And yeah. Cause the Monday is still a public holiday, isn't it? I think. Or yeah, it's the right. default public holiday. Yeah. With in somehow, to, yeah, 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 that's yeah, it. Yeah, okay. yeah. I'm trying to remember this from last week because yeah. that was a bit confusing. Yeah. Um. So yeah, yeah. Some people not not too impressed with how it was rolled out. So and they were saying, you know, that that the shops might be closed now, so it might work out for the workers not going to get anything now exactly. that they would have yeah. had before, and, and are there going to be less places yeah. for everyone to go? And this is a typical kind of stupidity that you know unions do. They that they. Twist and twist and twist, and then in the end, nobody works. You know, mm. and that's that, you know, and that's supposed to be a good thing. Yeah. Uh, just anyway, it's uh, let's see what happens next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just never know. This play continues, and we never know what the next scene will be. Yes. On a Pete. positive note, mm. <laughs> real estate is going quite well at the moment. I must say, in all the territory. Yeah, very good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, re- rentals are. Uh, Increasing, we're finding it really hard to find rentals for our clients, and uh, the real estate market's going well. Excellent, that's good. And then I think we saw some ABS data come out this week too, right? About some other things here going better than expected, um, economically speaking. So that's Must be um, coming up. Yeah, well, yeah. you know. Yeah, you get into that. I mean, how how bad hit? I mean, how much is are we, were we able to absorb things here because of the public service and nothing happening, right? Whereas for the for the pandemic, I'm saying, and then and now we're seeing, I guess, the effects of that, and and probably the good fortune of our location and where yeah. we're away from everything, yeah. and how well we've we've come through COVID nineteen here in the end of the pandemic. So doesn't take a lot to turn us around, either. Yeah, yeah. yeah. no. Not many people here, so. Hey, uh, just lastly, um, we didn't mention it, and you may not have covered it, but uh, the first flight of international students arrived this week mm. in Darwin, uh, which I thought was good. You know, obviously the, the uni needs more people. I must admit, I did sort of raise an eyebrow when I saw that a great chunk of them were from China. Um, not that I've got any issue with Chinese students coming here, but I just thought it was perhaps... You know, ironic that that most of the flight or a lot of the flight were with Chinese students, but well, I can I, I can tell you how many. Oh, good. So forty two. 
Okay. Of the 63. Right, there you go. We're Chinese nationals. So did they weren't too concerned about the tweets? Well, <laughs> yeah, well, but so this has yeah. this was raised with me this week, and we're mm. still trying to figure out if we can get something up on it. But I'll, I'll tell you just a bit about that. So I went to see to you and I asked about that because, given the nature of the geopolitical unrest mm. and the, the turmoil, yeah. I guess, with um, yeah, with that tweet and just with how China's conducting its business here these days, people and academics and Chinese foreign policy experts, you know, that I was talking to said. Beijing knows about this flight. Now, why are they doing this now? Why would they allow these students to come back into Australia now in the middle of this turmoil that's going on? So uh, wolf diplomacy, whatever they're calling it here now. Why are they letting them come in now? I mean, they told them months ago, don't go to Australia. It's racist and, yeah. you know, you're not going to be there now. Somehow they're letting them in. So the question is why like the the ccp would know who's coming in um the question is i think the issue is just that people should maybe be aware like, i mean what 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 safeguards what checks did they do did the nt government do or charles darwin university administration do on any of these people who are coming through you know one of the questions that i asked them was are they are they new students are they returning students and the question yeah. was uh, not answered they didn't answer that okay it said something about returning students, but they didn't say anything about if there were new students involved there. Um, yeah, I think given that, I mean, why, why, why would they be allowed to come here and nowhere else now in the middle of all this stuff? And I get that that was maybe started before, but but anyway, people are just a little some 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 academics saying that um, that it is something to be aware of, and uh, uh, you know what. Beijing would be aware of exactly what's going on. I'm trying to find one of these these lines, which yeah, was um, about the dollars per student that it's worth to the to the government. Yeah, well, to well, to the university for the university it is. But I think the concern is that well, look, you know, somebody had said, um, I suspect Beijing believes it has useful friends in the NT, including the government and university administrations. So the restart of students is a means of building those links and then using them to exert subtle pressure on Canberra to back down later on. Um, wow. So that's the kind of thing that that's we're... That's very nefarious. Yeah, yeah, and this is, you know, these are these are people who are experts in Chinese policy saying this. So Beijing would undoubtedly be aware. Is it is it an olive branch? No, it doesn't look like that. No, it doesn't look... Yeah, all yeah. Of it, like they're saying to Australia, here, yeah, take some of our students yeah. who are working together to bring them in at this time where this turmoil is going on. Yeah, yeah I think you got to ask that question. So well, one thing I don't understand... to talk to more people about it. Um, like, this is the beginning of December. Is there, is there another semester commencing or something? Is there? Like, what are they coming here at the end of the year for? That's yeah, a good I, question. I don't know how the years go yeah. here. Yeah. I mean, there's really nothing to do in the month of December. Uni is finished as a general rule. Um, Are they running off semesters because of what's happened this year? I have chance? no idea, but I would have thought Chris would have been asking those questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we haven't got answers <laughs> for everything here yet. It's all one of the last questions. I'm trying to. <laughs> yeah, let me see if I can find what they said. But yeah, look, it was something about the timing. Yeah. We're going to follow it up. We're mm. going to keep going there nice. because, yeah, some seems. Well, I think we have to. I mean, look. I mean, my personal experience with the, with the Chinese students in, at, at NTU or CDU as it is now, uh, absolutely fabulous. Uh, per, you know, just wonderful people. 
And this is the problem, you know. Uh, people are judged by the actions of their government. Mm -hmm. And I think more often than not, that's not a good way to go. Mm. You know, mm. I think, uh, I, mean, I mean, if we were judged by the actions of our government, uh, particularly our territory government, uh, <laughs> I think yeah. we'd feel a little bit undone, you know. <laughs> so uh, I think it's really important to, uh, to to see past all of this and to really focus on the on the on the content and the character of the person. To borrow a phrase, mm. yeah, 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 and the cuisines they eat, mm. Mm. and the cuisine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So they're, they're yeah, all being sent to the Howard Springs facility. Yeah, that's to right. To dwell with the uh, with the other COVID, uh, yeah, and they're 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 paying for the flights and CDU's paying for the quarantine. So quarantine's on Is that. that right? Yeah, because it's something like it's, it's worth to them thirty thousand a year or something yeah, yeah. to have them there. So it's twenty five hundred. They'll cover that. If but there must be some deal they're doing with the government. Surely that that's not a we'll pay you. That's a discount for something else. CDU said they paid the twenty five hundred. Really. Yeah, for each student's quarantine. Okay, but aren't they borrowing money at the same time? <laughs> yeah, from the government, which the government's doing the same thing yeah. from their government. Leon, I think you need to check the books, mate. This is, uh, <laughs> yeah. this is I, I have been <laughs> checking the books, mate. You know, somebody is writing. Someone has got a printer yeah. uh, somewhere. <laughs> And they're printing. Printing <laughs> plastic notes. All right, mate. Well, look, it's been great having you here again. Uh, also, the professor, welcome and uh, wonderful to have you on the podcast. Uh, you are, of course, the inspiration for Territory Story. You know that, right? Thank you. Over to you, buddy. Oh, yeah. okay. No, he's looking a bit... Everyone's oh. looking at me now. I'm a bit nervous. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, guys. Thank you. That was the weekend edition of the Territory Story Podcast. Weekends with Walshie, back again next week. We'll catch you then. You've been listening to the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story Podcast on all leading podcasting platforms. The Territory Story Podcast, thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.